0: Welcome to counterpunch radio my name is Eric Drazer thanks so much for tuning in and coming back to the show first time listeners finding the show welcome aboard you may in fact be watching this as a video on counterpunch plus and if you are thank you so much for that support it really does mean the world to us if you are not a subscriber well let me tell you about counterpunch plus because this is our brand new subscriber section we're not on patreon we don't have some kind of elaborate paywall scheme it's just Counterpunch Plus, this section that is just for you guys, for our subscribers, those who help to keep the lights on, to keep the bills paid. Counterpunch Plus has all kinds of exclusive content. There's articles, in-depth analysis, investigative pieces, there's funny stuff, there's humorous sarcasm, there's uh, book reviews, there's videos now, videos that I've been doing, including the one that you may or may not be watching right now, and a lot more that's gonna be in Counterpunch Plus. Go over to the website, get your subscription. You can do an annual, you can do a monthly, whatever works for you. We, of course, greatly, greatly appreciate that. So with that said, I want to welcome back to the show, I guess for the first time on the video aspect here, but for probably the third, fourth, fifth time on the show, it's Robert Hunziker. There is no better writer on environmental issues and climate change anywhere that I know of and if you know of one don't even speak his name because Robert is the best I'm telling you Robert writes for counterpunch regularly you can find all of his stuff on counterpunch go there it's well he's he's a frequent contributor uh he's a columnist really let's talk to him hi Robert hi how are you doing Eric doing well. Thank you so much, as always, for giving us some time. I want to talk with you about so many issues, none of which are particularly uh, inspiring of joy, all of which are somewhat depressing, but it's important. Robert, you've covered climate change now for years and years. You've covered so many different aspects of it. I want to give you a very general question and kind of just, I guess, set you off from there. Tell me a little bit about what's happening on this planet right now. And what I really mean is tell me how, in your mind, the planet is in the final throes, how we are on life support.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. With uh, A couple anniversaries I want to mention first, Eric. One is on uh, August the 5th of this year, it'll be my 10-year anniversary of Articles in Counterpunch. So my first article was August 5th in the year 2011 Uh, the title of that article by the way was capitalism at the guillotine and uh, Still one of my favorite articles by the way Um, The other thing the other thing that uh, we should uh, take note of is that uh, we just observed Earth overshoot day July 29th, so that was just a couple of days ago And what Earth Overshoot Day means is that humanity in total, in mass, we've used our natural resource budget for the entire year already. So from this point forward, when it comes to our ecosystems and how they regenerate, we're going into a deficit for the rest of the year. Um, And this comes from the global Footprint network, and they look at 15,000 different data points to determine what the human global footprint is. And right now, we're using one and three quarters Earths to survive. You tell me how long does that last when we hear the, the Earth is no longer, can no longer, it's a net deficit every year to the tune of another three quarters of a planet. And it won't be too much longer before we're going to be using two planets to live. So when we talk about the earmarks of the final throes of life support for our planet, it's pretty serious stuff. And um, I don't think, I think it's very difficult for people to have the proper focus. So one of the things we want to look at first is let's, let's look at complex life forms such as you know, wild mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians. What is the total biomass of the planet? And we're part of that. What's interesting about it is what's happened is over the last 2000 years, it's flip-flopped. And today, the wild um, uh, biomass is 5%. The other 95% is us, cows, us, and cows, and chickens, <laughs> and, and, and pigs. So basically, we're 95% of the, bio, of, the, of the mammal biomass in the planet right now. 2,000 years ago it flipped. What's happened is that the wild vertebrate uh, population Has crashed, literally crashed over the last 50 years. The World Wildlife Foundation and the Zoological Society of London did a a, a, really a landmark study and what they found out is that 67% of wild vertebrate life has has collapsed, died, over this period of time. Now, If you want to put that into some context, the context, the best context I can think of, is the Permian Triassic extinction event of 252 million years ago. We've had five extinctions. We know that. The scientists have studied them thoroughly. We understand what happened. And in the Permian Triassic extinction, what happened then is that 75% of all terrestrial life was annihilated and 95% of the marine species was annihilated. Well, if we have just annihilated 67% of the terrestrial wild <laughs> biomass in a period of 50 years, we're not too far off from that 75% terrestrial wildlife annihilation of the Permian-Triassic period. Furthermore, you had 95% of marine life died during the Permian-Triassic. Well, you, have you seen the movie, the, the documentary, Seaspiracy? If you have a chance to see it, I know that uh, Josh wrote a review on it, and I wrote a review about that. It's one of the best documentaries I've seen about what's happening with our oceans. And basically what they told us, if you look at the numbers, um, let me just share some numbers with you. Um, global fish populations are literally plummeting. Halibut's down 99%, cod 86%, bluefin tuna down 97%, haddock down 99%, you can go on. Then if you look at the entire world of sharks, there are all kinds of sharks, hammerhead, thresher sharks, bull sharks, down 80 to 95%, 100 million sharks are killed a year. That's at the top of the food chain. That's at the top of the food chain of the marine food chain. We're working from the top down. That impacts the food chain all the way down. Just to give you one example of the spinoff of that. Um, seagulls, they're down 70%. They're down 70%. Why is that? Well, when sharks hunt, what they do is they will swim and cause a pool of fish to rise close to the surface where it's easier for them to eat. That's when the seagulls can dive and feed as well. So, <laughs> The spin-off is we're losing seagulls as well. But if you look at the numbers what's happening to our oceans, it's right in line with the greatest extinction event in the history of this this planet. Now, when it comes to um, life support systems, there's probably nothing more important than our global wetlands. And we have today, of the global wetlands that we had a couple of hundred years ago, 13%. Why are global wetlands so important? And what's the ramification going ahead for our life support system? Here's what they do. They cleanse water. They mitigate floods. A lot of flooding problems lately, right? They recharge aquifers. And they're a habitat for biodiversity. Now, NASA informs us that one-third of the world's largest aquifers, one-third of them, are in a distress mode and overstressed right now. And the reason they're stressed or overstressed, one-third of the world's aquifers, is they don't have any new water flowing to them because we don't have the wetlands. The wetlands supply the aquifers with replenishment. So. Needless to say, you know, <laughs> we've got a real problem with the, the foundation of our life, life support system. It's, it's wearing thin. Meanwhile, we're using one and three quarters planets to survive as a, as a race. Insect populations have been decimated, down 80% insect populations, according to Krefeld Entomological Society out of Europe. They've been around since 1905, and they did a study in nature reserves throughout Europe. In a period of 30 years, in 63 nature reserves, flying insects dropped off 80%, the mass that they caught. Well, (laughs) there's a theory out there by certain scientists that as the insects go, so does everything else on the planet, by the way. So there's one more nail in the coffin. Kelp forests, which are the underwater equivalent of the rainforest, are down 40%. Coral reefs are down 50%. All planet life is down 40%. And um, the um, Brazilian rainforest last year, 103,000 wildfires in the Brazilian rainforest, one of the most important ecosystems on the planet. And 95% of those We're started by humans. So, uh, you know, if you talk about the um, Brazilian Amazon rainforest and you talk about the Great Barrier Reef, those are two of the greatest assets in the planet. And they're both under very severe problems. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more when I talk about um, how uh, the, uh, the other subject that you and I talked about the anthropogenic rocket ship that we're on right
0: now okay before we get before we get to the anthropogenic rocket ship because i want to i want to shift into that in a moment but help us to connect how these changes that you're talking about these massive die-offs and things like that how is that how will that impact us And what I mean by that is I understand 80, 90% of the sharks dying is a bad thing. I understand that insect populations dramatically declining is a bad thing. I understand these things at a conceptual and an abstract level, but help us to connect it to the real world. What are these things actually in the real world going to do to us or no longer do for us?
1: Well, let's just talk about the wetland situation. Let's just talk about that. You know, uh, if one third of our wetlands are no, no longer, if we're down to 13% of the wetlands that we had two years, uh, 200 years ago. Right. And if, 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 if one third of our aquifers are overstressed and not receiving feed stock from wetlands, you're going to run out of water in a whole bunch of places. Try the middle East for one, for example. Um, and, uh, actually, um, Uh, There are some other regions actually uh, in the United States where in parts of Texas, that major aquifer is already starting to run out of some water there. Now, think about that for a minute. What do we hear about when you have a lot of rainfall in Houston and places like that? It's flooding, right? Well, gee, they built over all the wetlands there. They built over, they they cemented over them, didn't they? So you don't have that proper drainage system that you normally have on the planet. So what's the other rep you want a, a real life? Repercussion? Try Germany with the floods. Try China with the floods, because what did they do to their wetlands? The same thing. You just had literally an apocalyptic moment take place over several days in China. In Shangzhou, which is a population of 12 million people, you literally had people trapped in a subway car with water up to their necks because of the floods, because in China they paved over their um, wetlands. And when the rain came, the water (laughs) all of a sudden went where all the people were. They literally had people die. They had 9,000 homes in China smashed apart because of flooding waters. 9,000 homes. So there's some real-life examples of what's going on.
0: Yeah. You know, and the other thing that comes to my mind is Hurricane Harvey. I think was it was at Harvey that was in Houston, where yeah. the flooding itself was bad and destroyed so much, but the flooding then triggered the release of toxic chemicals from dozens of chemical plants that then began to poison people, right? So it's not just the flooding, it's the damage to infrastructure, damage to factories and other things, which then causes innumerable other problems beyond just water.
1: hmm yeah. You know um, you know who E.O. Wilson is, the famous biologist from Harvard, who's 92 now. He's been called the Darwin of the 21st century. I want to read something to you that he said that um, kind of tells a story. He says, if we choose the path of destruction, the planet will continue to descend irreversibly into the Anthropocene epoch. The biologically final age, in which the planet exists almost exclusively by, for, and of ourselves, um, and um, scientists are onto what's going on more so than ever before. They're really starting to speak out. And when I mention some of these uh, reports about the loss of our life-giving forces in the planet. The group of scientists that did one of those studies made the following statement. The scale of the threats to the biosphere and all its life forms, including humanity, is in fact so great that it's difficult to grasp for even well-informed experts. Now, one of the problems we've got, Eric, is even though there's a realization of this type of thing, Similar to the climate conferences like the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, when they have COP26, COP25, 10, 20, 30,000 people all come to one spot like Paris, and we're going to fix the climate, we're going to hold the temperature to 2 degrees C, boy, we're going to do all this stuff, and then they don't do squat. Okay, similarly... With biodiversity, there have been some of these kind of meetings, these meetings, conferences, party meetings, going back to 2010 when you had the ASHI Biodiversity uh, uh, Conference in 2010. And they were going to do all kinds of things like to replenish, help replenish nature and um, the planet. Not one of them has happened. Not a one. The United Nations has a sustainable development goal conference that they held several years ago. And they all, you know, you had 10, 15, 20,000 people come, a lot of caviar, a lot of wine, a lot of bullshit and talk, set all kinds of goals. Not one is done. So one of the problems is, and the major, maybe, probably maybe the major problem is that people love to party and show up and talk, but it's all smoke. No fire. You got the same thing happening with the climate, with the internet, uh, the inter, 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 uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change. So let's talk about the Earth has become an anthropogenic rocket ship, and the reason I say that um, is that we've really taken over nature. Humanity has taken over nature. Uh, if 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 the planet is a spaceship. We've gone into the cockpit and said, move over, Mother Nature. We're taking over. And you know what? We're going to put it at warp speed. And that's what we're doing. And let's talk about warp speed and what that does to the planet, because this is real stuff. This is should be red flashing lights and signals and the sirens going off and the, and, and the, squ- and the bell on the square and all these things saying, hear ye, hear ye. You better gather around, folks, because we're destroying ourselves. Let's first talk about Antarctica for a moment in terms of this warp speed we're talking about. Now, a year ago, Eric Rigno, who's the leading um, scientist on the Arctic, and the whole planet, he's with uh, NASA Jet Propulsion, and uh, he spoke to the National Academies in Washington, DC. And the subject of his speech was Antarctica and sea level rise. Now, keep in mind that the, according to the IPCC in Paris in 2015, they said, well, you know, if we keep on the same course, we're well, on now sea level might rise, maybe a foot or a foot and a half by 2100, something like that. We can probably live with that somehow, right? Okay. Rigno at the National Academies, gave the Ice Sheet Mass loss of Antarctica going back to 1979 for every 10 year cycle. So 1979 to 1989, 10 years, 40 gigatons was lost over the 10 year period per year, 40 gigatons. No, I'm sorry, in total, Um, 89 to 91, 50 gigatons. Watch this. Now what you're gonna see when we talk about this spaceship we're talking about is the year 2000 is an inflection point when everything just takes off like crazy. 2000 to 2010, 166 gigatons. It tripled. 2010 to 2017, 252 gigatons. A gigaton is a billion tons. A billion tons is equivalent to 160 million elephants. Okay? And he told these people at this meeting, he so said, the key metric you need to watch for sea level rise is if the glacial flow increases five, uh, by uh, sixfold or more. And what they did is they, they did a 40-year study of the glacial flow. They did a study of 176 of these basins all around Antarctica. And the glacial flow registered five to eight times. Well, he told them that if it's six, six times or more, sea levels would rise 12 to 13 feet by 2100.
0: That's a problem. Now, just to, just to put that into perspective, uh, we're talking about at least given the current uh, state of the world and the way that cities are designed and so forth. You're talking about the destruction of probably most of the world's yes. major cities. Yes,
1: you are. Yeah. I mean, this, this, is, out, this is an out-of-control situation already. Um, and, and that's not even to talk about what's happening in the West Antarctica, which is the most vulnerable area of the Antarctic continent, is West Antarctica. Uh, I mean, Antarctica is huge. It's as big as Mexico and the United States combined. Uh, the, the ice is one, two, three, four miles thick. It's 90% of the world's ice. In West Antarctica, uh, you've got a glacier there called the Thwaites Glacier. That, that, that scientists have called the Doomsday Glacier. And um, Eric, it's, it's 4,000 feet deep and it's a hundred miles across. And what they've discovered is that it is, it's, 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 there's a big empty cavity in, on, on the underneath side where it's been melting from the underneath side. That's the size of Manhattan and growing like crazy. The other thing they've recently discovered, a lot of these things we're finding out, by the way, because science has advanced so much only over the last few decades. You know, a lot of the stuff we're finding out now, no one would have been able to discover in the, in the last century, in fact. So we're really getting an eyeful compared to what science was able to do before, because now they actually have an underwater drone they put under the Thwaites Glacier, and they've seen something new that's even a little more alarming yet, and that is where the ice shelf that comes out over the water is attached to land probably a mile back from the very edge of it is starting to uh, deteriorate. So the whole thing could come unglued. Now, the problem with losing an ice sheet is when you lose the ice sheets, the rest it speeds up the flow of the whole glacier because an ice sheet is like removing the hockey goalie from the net. It's wide open Then, I mean, these situations, um, this situation, you know, a West Antarctica five years ago, um, the scientists said, well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's irretrievably, we're going to lose West Antarctica, but it's going to take hundreds of years is what they said five years ago. Today, They're not saying that any longer. They're starting to really sweat it, by the way. But but what's what's happening there? Um, I'm gonna give you a preview, and we have a live preview right now of runaway global warming, what it will look like if, in fact, it happens. It happened in Australia two years ago. Um, And what happened is they had this intense heat that hit, not too dissimilar from what happened up along the northern coastline in the United States and Canada just recently, but it went on and on, unrelenting. And what happened is you had 20,000 bats dropped dead out of the sky, a lot of them right into, right into cities. Uh, fruit on trees cooked from the inside out. Well, when it cooks from the inside out, it doesn't get a chance to ripen, you can never eat it, right? Um, streets buckled. The Murray River had a million fish die, they can't take the heat. So we have seen a preview of what runaway global warming looks like in Australia. By the way, incidentally, Australia is running 1.4 C above baseline right now. They're way ahead of the rest of the the world for whatever the reasons are. Well, (laughs) you know, so um, that's an example of what's going to happen if things come apart at the East Siberian Arctic Shelf, which we'll talk about in a little bit, because it's
0: yeah let's 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 talk about siberia and the arctic and uh about well about this chemical planet i want to talk about a whole bunch of other things on the other side of the break we will continue the conversation with robert hunziker you're listening to counterpunch radio maybe even watching us on counterpunch plus either way enjoy the music we will be right back
2: To which fate have these gatherings fell? Which walls echo all the chants we yelled Into faces on the coins we tossed into the wishing well Drinking water on which we subsist Mixing into rivers that did not exist Yesterday
0: if you are not already a member, go to Counterpunch, get your subscription to Counterpunch Plus. We would really appreciate that. I would, Robert would, we all would. Okay, Robert, I want to pick up where we were, uh, where, where we were talking about before the break, and um, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, well, this idea that you and I were throwing around, of what you called the chemical planet. But before we get to that, let's run through some of these. Um, I don't even know, hotspot is sort of not even the right word, but some of these real uh, crisis points on the planet. Tell me about the Amazon and the Great Barrier Reef, and what are the indicators that we're getting from these two uh, natural wonders that really should give us some serious, serious concerns?
1: Well, let's talk about the Great Barrier Reef for a moment, because um, there's some really smart scientists who've been studying this who think it's very possible we could lose it entirely. Uh, that sounds absurd, but let me just make the point. Number one, the Great Barrier Reef is one of the greatest natural resources in the planet. It's 1,500 miles. Um, you can see it from outer space. Uh, it's home to, I get to think, 9 million different types of marine life. And what's happened is it's had three bleachings in five years. Now, this is unprecedented because normally when it has bleachings over the centuries, as a matter of fact, they don't come three of them in five years, maybe every decade or two, and then it heals up because the coral reefs are fighters. They'll come back. But when it happens, the sequence is three in five years. It can't fight. It can't come back. So they did a survey in March of 2020 of 1,036 reefs. It was just widespread bleaching, the the worst in history. And here's what happened that's never happened before. The Great Barrier Reef has three different segments. There's the north, the middle, and the south to simplify it. This is the first time the bleaching hit all of them. The water temperatures, and here's what caused it, in the waters were at all-time 120, over 120 years, all-time highs the hottest the water's ever been there in the ocean. The ocean's absorbing most of the heat in the planet, after all, it is two thirds of the planet. And if it weren't absorbing as much heat as it's absorbing and as much CO2 as it's absorbing, we probably wouldn't be talking here today. But we see the, the impact of that with the Great Barrier Reef. So there are some really smart people who follow this thing very carefully, They think that by 2040, 2050, we could lose the Great Barrier Reef at the rate it's going because of too much heat in the ocean. And what's the heat caused from? The heat is caused from too much, too many greenhouse gases, whether that's nitrous oxide, methane, or carbon dioxide that goes into the atmosphere and acts as a big blanket. And the more of it you get, the more, the thicker the blanket is, just like when you put extra blankets on your bed at night at home, and you heat up and the planet's heating up um, more than it's heated up in a long time. Now, we got the same problem. These things are working in threes in the Amazon rainforest. Uh, According to NASA, it's had a severe drought every five years like clockwork since we turned the corner on the new century, the year 2000, 1998, 2005, 2010, 2015, 2020 permanent damage to the rainforest from the droughts. As a matter of fact, uh, NASA has some satellites now where they can actually measure what um, the aquifers contain uh, around the world, and that's how we knew the thing, the, the, the information I gave you earlier, about a third of our aquifers are overstressed. You have overstressed aquifers in the Amazon rainforest, so you don't only have that, where part of the rainforest, by the way, has already turned the corner, the tipping point, if you will, from a, 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 a carbon sink storing, storing carbon, which it's done forever, to emitting carbon. Part of it's already started to do that. The two most famous scientists uh, on on um, the um, Amazon rainforest are Thomas Lovejoy who's called the Godfather of Biodiversity. He's at George Mason University. And the other is Carlos Nobre with University of, uh, of um, uh, oh God, Sao Sa- Sa- Paulo. And they made a joint statement a year ago. And what they said is that the turning point is here for the, the Amazon rainforest. So it's only going to get worse. Now, on top of that, as I mentioned earlier in this discussion here, you and I are having, there were 103,000, think of this, 103,000 wildfires in the Amazon a year ago. Um, Bolsonaro's government changed the monitoring of wildfires in the Amazon. It used to be done by a civilian organization, I forget the acronym for it, N.A. something. A year ago, he changed it to the Army. The Army is now monitoring the Amazon rainforest, no longer a civil organization. So let that one sink in a little bit.
0: Um, Now,
1: on the oceans.
0: Well, to your point, I'm sorry, just real quick, Robert, to your point, this really touches on another critical aspect of all of this, which is that the uh, environmental degradation, the destruction of the planet, etc. That this is kind of in this very sick way going hand in hand with this slide to far right and fascist politics. Bolsonaro is a great example. How it's sort of almost an embrace of this sort of death spiral in the form of uh, in the form of the political uh, manifestation of that. Trump is a great example of that as well dirty energy dirty projects destruction of habitats for a border wall I mean you could point to a thousand examples where you know this sort of far-right politics is a politics of destruction destruction of human beings and destruction of habitats uh, environments and ecosystems
1: that is correct yeah um, so uh, and, and that's unfortunately a, a, an issue that doesn't seem to be dying down. If anything, it's expanding. And it's expanding in the most um, um, difficult ways for, we're seeing it right here in this country, to try to wrap your arms around. I mean, Congress is trying to actually look into what happened January. Look at the troubles they're having, just trying to figure that out. Anyway, let's move on. And I want to give you something on the oceans that came out of a landmark UN report, 900 page, 300 scientists were involved in it. Because a lot of the scientists now are coming out of their shell and they're starting to tell it like it is. Doesn't get a lot of public exposure for some reason. But the opening statement to that 900 page landmark report out of the UN about the oceans says the following. This is really critical, listen to it. The same oceans that nourished human evolution are poised to unleash misery. This is 300 scientists put this together. On a global scale, unless the carbon pollution destabilizing Earth's marine environment is brought to heel, destructive changes are already set in motion. That's the group of the, probably the 300 leading scientists in the planet when it comes to the oceans. So they're not bashful, Those are harsh, hard words, and they're telling us we're in big trouble. Now, let's just look at one issue of many in the oceans, which is acidification, and it's caused by what? Too much CO2. CO2 comes from where? It comes from the tailpipes of cars, comes from trains, planes, factories, right? Most of it goes into the ocean, the rest of it goes up into the atmosphere, it's causing this warming thing. When it goes into the ocean, it destabilizes the acidity of the ocean. So, for example, at the base of the food chain in the ocean, you have pteropods. Pteropods are little, pea-sized snails. Um, and you almost need to use a microscope to see them. They they, 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 uh, uh, the, they, they reproduce by the trillions. They're the food for everything from whales to salmon, this food source. The base of the food chain. Now, What's happened is NOAA took samples of pteropods off the northern coast of the United States, off the coast of Washington. They looked at them, and what happened is that their shells are thinning, and when their shells are thinning, what happens is, one, they can't mature. Secondly, they can't reproduce. The same thing happened in the Southern Ocean about five years ago uh, when they looked at pteropods in the Southern Ocean they found the same problem. So there's just one of a multitude of problems in the ocean that's starting to evolve that's extremely concerning, okay? As a matter of fact, there's one of the world's leading oyster manufacturing plants, If you call it oyster manufacturing, oyster raising, I guess, in the state of Washington. Um, They have these inland pools where they put the larva and then, Oysters will, will will, will grow, um, and they were flushing it with water from the ocean, and the larva wouldn't grow. And they found out the reason for it was because the ocean water was too acidic. So they had to change their whole modus operandi to raise oysters on an oyster farm in the United States in Washington. All right, now. Um, I'm gonna talk about Greenland for a minute because what's happened in Greenland um, is spooky as well. You know, this is all bad news we're talking about, this negative stuff. Problem with it, Eric, is it's all true. It's all factual. It's all based on science. That's the problem with it. So sometimes you have to face up to the science and that's what we're doing here. I hate to be the bearer of a bunch of negative stuff, but my whole speech is that because it's real. And we need to get on top of it somehow on this planet. There's one way or another you get the messages out, and this is one way, I guess. We're trying our best, aren't we? Now, Greenland. Yeah. Um, The glaciers in Greenland, uh, they've doubled their rate of ice mass loss since the year 2000. What did I say about 2000? Everything takes off, there, there, there it is again. Used to be in Greenland every summer, Uh, you get slush on the top of Greenland, maybe 10, 15% of the whole surface would be slush. This is throughout the last several hundred years. Since the year 2000, every year, it's more and more and more. And it's like 60, 70, 80% of the whole surface turns to slush now. Not only that, um, if you look at, uh, let's just take one major glacier there because there are several big ones all the way around. It's called the Helheim Glacier. And it never really moved throughout all time that we know of until the year 2000. It's now lost five miles of ice since the year 2000, the Helheim Glacier. Didn't budge for the prior X number of years. Now it's lost five years of ice. Used to be with Greenland prior to the year 2000, that every warm cycle was balanced every year by the winter cycle. So the snow and ice would replace everything that it lost. That's not happening anymore. Here's one more, that's one more example of what's what's going on with global warming. It's so real. And a lot of this has to do with the Arctic because what happens in the Arctic, and if there's a leading edge of apocalypse in this planet, it's the Arctic for a whole bunch of reasons. Number one, It's the planet's largest reflector. And um, when you have the Arctic of old, it would reflect back into outer space 80 to 90% of all the sun's radiation. But when you lose the Arctic, and we've lost almost all of the multi-year ice now, it used to be, what, 10, 15, 20, 30 feet thick, multi-year ice, Um, and you had that albedo effect that would reflect the sunlight back out. You don't have any, it's just maybe a small portion now of multi-year ice, the rest of it is really thin ice. It doesn't amount to much. You don't even need an icebreaker to go through there any longer. Problem though, is now you don't get the albedo effect. It's absorbing that sun radiation into the water, into the dark background. Now that leads us to a whole bunch of problems. One, you get a spill off effect to Greenland. And we're, we've just talked about that. What's happening there? The other thing you get is the, probably the biggest red flag on the planet, which is the East Siberian Arctic Shelf um, along the northern coast of Russia. There are several seas. There's the Laptev Sea, the Barents Sea, the East East uh, East Siberian Arctic Sea, and um, the East Siberian Arctic Sea is huge. Uh, it's the size of um, Um, most of the countries in Europe combined, by the way, that's how big it is. Um, And it's a continental shelf that goes out on the water. It's only 50 meters deep, uh, deep. It's shallow water. It's loaded, loaded with methane hydrates that have been frozen for millennia. And what's happening now, there's a Russian scientist group in concert with a Norwegian scientist group for example a year ago they took a huge ship um, I did an article on this and um, we actually uh, Jeff and Josh had a picture of this enormous beautiful white ship uh, with the article um, and they spent 40 days traveling around the East Siberian Arctic Sea these same people simultov is one of the eco simultov is one of the scientists and um, have been monitoring this for a number of decades. And 20 or 30 years ago, they go into an area and they would find methane would be bubbling up, like champagne, bubbling up, maybe uh, uh, a foot in diameter. Those same areas now have expanded out to almost half a mile. They were going through bubbly, if they would have dropped a cigarette overboard, they would have blown up. In some areas. Um, now methane, and this is a very controversial subject, this whole methane issue, uh, most people, the scientists rather, prefer to ignore it. As a matter of fact, the IPCC gives no credit whatsoever to the methane that is stored in the permafrost, undersea permafrost as well as land permafrost. Uh, John Holdren of Harvard, uh, the National uh, Academies had a, a, a Zoom meeting about a year ago, and John Holdren of Harvard, who worked with the Obama administration on matters of environment and so forth, monitored this meeting. They talked about the permafrost. They talked about the fact the IPCC doesn't give it any in their calculations at all. One of the speakers is a Dr. Katie Anthony, who's a specialist on permafrost in Siberia, she said a couple things I thought were pretty interesting. She said, we're standing at the threshold of abrupt change in permafrost carbon emissions. She said something else. She said 14,000 years ago, flared up to 4C, temperatures flared up to 4C, and it took 8,000 years for that to happen. She said, today we'll do it in 80 years. Now, I'm going to tell you, at 4C, above pre-industrial, we won't be around any longer. We won't. The planet won't be able to support life. Another issue that dovetails with all of this that we're starting to see pop up is the wet bulb temperature impact on the human body. And What that means is this. At 95 degrees Fahrenheit, and with 90 degree, 90% humidity, you will die in six hours if you're seated under a shade tree with a bottle of water in your hands. So that's 95 degrees Fahrenheit, and 90% humidity, you will die. Your organs are shut down. They're already seen instances of this wet bulb temperature impact in parts of Pakistan, And in parts of the UAE, United Arab Emirates, they're already starting to see that for several hours during the day where it's starting to show up. So um, that's kind of the end result, by the way, of global warming, is the wet bulb temperature impact. And if we keep up what we're doing, it's going to spread to more places. Meanwhile, as you and I had talked at the top of this conversation, um, we've turned into a chemical plant planet, and if you overlay that on top of all the issues you and I just talked about, um, maybe we shouldn't even talk about this part of it, because um, I don't think, uh, it's really not in the public domain very much, you don't see much about it, that we we have a toxic chemical planet that we've created, and the planet has become a chemical enterprise. There are sixty five hundred different man made chemicals used to produce food in this country today. Sixty five hundred different chemicals. When you go to the grocery store, if you buy something and you look at the label, if you can't pronounce the word, don't buy it. If you if something, if you see something in that label you can't pronounce, don't buy it. Um, I did a review of J, Julian Cribb's uh, new book, Earth Detox, which is on uh, Counterpunch, by the way. And um, um, I really suggest people buy that and read it. Uh, He's one of the leading science writers. He's from Australia. And he's one of the leading science writers, probably in the world. And uh, his his research is impeccable. Um, And what we've got is toxic chemicals are six times more than global warming emissions. Toxic chemicals are six times global warming emissions. More than 25,000 people die every day from chemical poisoning a day on the planet. The UN Environmental Program, there's a 2019 Global Chemicals Outlook where they discuss this very thing. I'm going to read one of the opening statements in Cribb's book. Ours is a poisoned world. This has all happened in an event unlike anything that has ever occurred ever before in all four billion years of our planet's story. This has happened so rapidly that most people are still unaware of the extent or scale of the peril, crept up on us unseen in a social climate of trusting acceptance of authority over barely the span of a single human lifetime. Impacts are only now starting to emerge. The Swiss Institute of Environmental Engineering did a survey, the first ever world survey, of chemicals in the planet. How many chemicals have been manufactured? It's 350,000 new ones a year, almost unregulated. What happens with the chemical manufacturers, Eric, is if they start to get regulations, they move offshore. They go where they don't have the regulations any longer. This stuff is not regulated like it should be at all, and I'm gonna prove it to you in a minute. Meanwhile, one of the things that's happening as a result of this chemical plant we got is we're killing soil. Now, this is nature's miracle. 95% of what you put in your mouth comes because of soil other than what we get out of the oceans. Pesticides are poisoning the life in soil. There's a major study done recently. It's called Pesticides and Soil Invertebrates, a Hazard Assessment Frontiers in Environmental Science, May 4th, 2021. Huge study, this is the biggest study that's ever been done, the most comprehensive study that's ever been done on soil organisms, done The studies were conducted, 51 studies in Europe, 31 studies in the United States, eight in Australia, in Canada, Argentina, Brazil, Cameroon, Colombia, Egypt, India, Japan, Madagascar, Mexico, New Zealand, Sri Lanka, all these places, Africa, Southern Africa, Yemen, even Yemen. They all showed chemical poison pesticides destroying the invertebrates in our soil. Now, a handful of soil is alive. It has thousands of living organisms in it. But what happens is when you put these pesticides and a lot of fertilizers into the soil, it kills all the nutrition in the soil, kills all those um, living organisms, and you end up with what? Dirt. And dirt has very few, if any, minerals. It has no nutrients. It has no living organisms, no worms, no fungi lacks texture, it lacks structure. We're creating dirt out of soil. The CDC in the United States, for two decades now, has been running a national survey of chemical pollutions in the blood, serum, and urine of people in this country. Certain few, few thousand people every year. And here's what they found out. Americans are a walking cocktail of contaminants, Americans are a walking cocktail of contaminants, and as Julian Cribb said in a book, "Don't eat anything that you can't <laughs> pronounce something on the label." Now let's look at this for just a minute, because our our modern industrial food system, from A to Z, is filled with chemicals, and we have three thousand chemical food ingredients that are permitted by the FDA to enhance freshness, taste, texture of foods, preservatives, things like this. Well, here's the issue. Chronic diseases. Why do we have so many chronic diseases in this country? A RAND study, a major landmark study. I've referenced this study in several articles over the years. Uh, They did the study in 2017. A major study by the RAND Corporation did a study of chronic diseases in America. 60% of Americans, or 200 million, have at least one chronic disease. Uh, Is that heart disease, arthritis, diabetes, uh, Parkinson's, high blood pressure, high cholesterol? 42% have multiple chronic diseases. It used to be, in the year 1900, people died from tuberculosis, smallpox, yellow fever, infectious diseases. But, you know, we created these uh, antibiotics and things like that and, 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 and so forth to take, take care of that. Um, but now it's chronic diseases. And how do you get a chronic disease? Where does that come from? Well, chemicals, in this they're starting to connect the dots. And according to Julian Cripp, There are hundreds, hundreds of articles out there on the shelves um, where they're connecting the dots to the chemical earth, all the chemicals we're using, and chronic disease. They're connecting the dots. And I'm going to just finish up this bit about the chemical planet with a quote from Jane Goodall in her book, Harvest of Hope written in 2005. It's my favorite quote. Someday we shall look back on this dark era of agriculture and shake our heads. How could we have ever believed that it was a good idea to grow our food with poisons? That's Jane Goodall. Um, and she's I, for me, she's one of the most respected people in the planet. Um, so there's my message, Eric. I told you it was going to be negative.
0: Well, it is. It, it is, and it isn't, because in the in the hopes of trying to find some possible uh, positive spin on this just seemingly apocalyptic conversation that we're having, it is the fact of resilience and I think that is something that people do need to try to keep in mind and you and I were talking um, and I've mentioned this on this show many times my children will be alive in the year 2100 it is absolutely within their lifespan to be to see that time period and I fully expect and I will dedicate obviously the rest of my life to doing whatever I can to making sure that they can still live on this planet at that time Um, and that involves a lot of different things and resilience i think is important i purchased the home that i live in now the prior owners had a garden that they sprayed pesticides into i tried to grow organically with no pesticides took about three years to amend the soil the best i could and now i have more or less healthy soil with no pesticides, or to the extent that I can do that, right? In a very small scale. There are remediation, there are ways to remediate problems, there are ways of fixing things, there are solutions, some of them technological, some of them going back to ancient practices, and some of them maybe somewhere in the middle there. But we have to also, I think, And this is something that I always try to impart to younger people as well, who find this, all of these issues so overwhelming and so mentally exhausting. It is that solutions not only can be found, but must be because there's really no other choice here, is there? There's no choice but to do what we can to save this thing and to address these problems. I mean, we didn't even talk about some of the most, some of the even more disturbing ones. You want to talk about a disturbing item, news item. How about microplastics? That terrifies me. The idea of microscopic level plastic floating around in the air in perpetuity for the rest of humans existence on this planet, because there will simply be no way to ever remove them from our atmosphere. That is terrifying to think about and yet that's the future and we don't have any choice but to live in it and to find solutions
1: Mm -hmm. i'll tell you a couple interesting ones um there are solutions You, you are correct by the way it's really a matter matter of marshalling the forces to get it done but singapore for example has vertical farming um that's very clever and what they've started to do now is they're in fact putting gardens on top of all the skyscrapers, and I think there's 60 skyscrapers now that have organic gardens on the rooftops. So they're doing vertical farming as well, and that's very smart, very brilliant. The other thing, a couple of things that could be down the pike that could surprise people, and I would encourage people to look up Myrrh reflection. It's a Harvard pro- program by uh, Dr. Tao. And it's called M-E-E-R, capital M, capital E, capital E, capital R, MER-Reflection at Harvard. And they're working on a very unique, unique program to put mirrors, use mirrors throughout the planet to do what the Arctic has done for so many years as our biggest reflector. And they have come up with a brilliant idea. And there's some scientists I know who've talked about this and said they think it may be our, one of our best hopes, by the way, um, to uh, redirect the sun just enough so that you get rid of some of these problems. Because, you know, you hear things like um, oh, Bill Gates, for example, spending money for carbon renewal, re- removal, and they say, well, gee, if we can remove the carbon from the atmosphere, if I spend billions of dollars, they've actually created this, like, 55 foot trailer, it has these big circular fans, looks like fans that suck in carbon dioxide, right? Well, guess what, if you were to actually go that direction, where you run into problems is the scale, because according to um, uh, Klaus Lackner, who's the director of the Center for Negative Carbon Emissions, the leading guy in the world, in fact, you would need 100 million million size units, 55 feet each one, to just keep us even with what we're putting into the atmosphere today in terms of CO2. Well, 100 million semi-trucks 55 feet long would circumnavigate the planet 42 times. So it's a huge problem. So rather than try to think about some geoengineering thing where, oh, man, conceptually, we can get it up on a little desktop here and figure out how to withdraw all this CO2. For some reason, they don't think about the scale and they're spending hundreds and tens of millions of dollars on stupid ideas, whereas the mirror concept may make a lot of sense. Well, that's... One yeah. other thing I want to mention... Go ahead. Yep. Yeah, is fusion, te- fusion te- technology. Uh, I know an engineer who's very much up on fusion technology is the same thing as the sun. It's the uh, uh, least harmful, um, best source of energy you could ever have if you can, ca- if you can capture uh, There's some vast strides being made, by the way, in fusion, fusion technology. I mean, that would be kind of like grabbing the golden ring if we can get that. And it's probably advanced by at least a decade. People thought it would be 20, 30, 40 years off. they're starting to advance it in Germany very quickly. So that's something else that Maybe it work.
0: And also, and and not to put the purely technological spin on it, but there's also a lot that's being rediscovered about ancient practices, indigenous practices, ways of renewing the environments and ecosystems and healing the earth. Like there's so much still to be learned from indigenous people who have uh, been stewards of the land in, in, in times pre-industrial capitalism. And anyway, there's much more that we could say about all of that. We're, of course, out of time. The only, the only, actually, the only thing we could really say is that at some point we're going to have to find a solution to capitalism because it is ultimately capitalism that is driving all of this, isn't it? So, uh, Rob, sure. Robert Hunsiker is a regular with Counterpunch. He is always publishing gold for us. Please do make sure that you go and check out all of Robert's stuff on Counterpunch. And now would be a great time to get your Counterpunch Plus subscription if you haven't already done so. Robert, thanks as always for chatting with us today. Thanks, Eric. Listeners, viewers, thank you again for your continued support, and we'll chat again real soon.